You're listening to audio from The Orchard Church in Collierville, Tennessee. If you would like more information about our church or our ministries, please visit theorchardchurch.com. I'm going to ask a question, and if it's true of you, uh, raise your hand. How many of you have ever started something and, and didn't finish it? May I see your hands? And let's be specific. Is there anyone here who started a home renovation project? And you went to Lowe's and you bought the material, paint, lumber, cement, whatever. You bought the tools, power tools. You came home, unwrapped them. You had the design, you, the, the DIY do-it-yourself project started. And it's been months and the wall is still not painted and the sink is still broken. And anybody say, that's me. That's me. Yeah. Yeah. Or let's, anybody here ever start music lessons, guitar or piano, and you never finished Anybody here ever, at the beginning of the year, did anybody say, this is going to be the year I'm going to read through the Bible and I'm going to lose weight and we'll get in shape? (laughs) Hands are already going up. And you got to Leviticus and said, well, maybe next year, or you, um, um, your diet lasted two days, or you bought a gym membership and it's been months since you went there. Anybody fit that category at all? There, there's something about us that loves to start things, and we're excited, and our intentions are great, but finishing them is, is something else, and sometimes uh, there's a good reason why we don't finish. Sometimes something more important comes along, like football or something else. Um, sometimes we, we don't have the time, uh, we underestimate the amount of money that it's going to cost, or we just get tired. For example, um, Jesus one time told a story about a man who built a tower, and because he didn't calculate what it was going to cost, got it only half finished and became a laughingstock to everybody else around. And in the Old Testament, Nehemiah felt called by God to build a wall around the city because the city's defenses were down. In those days, walls were the only protection a city had. And and it says when he got the wall half finished, the wall is halfway up, there was so much rubble, the workers just got tired and discouraged. They lost energy. And so sometimes we don't finish because uh, we just didn't do a good job of planning or we get tired. And sometimes we don't think we need to finish. That was me. Um, I started a doctoral program years ago, got all the way through the seminar work, and uh, decided I was going to join that subculture called the ABD, All But Dissertation. So I went to my wife and I said, you know, I don't need this degree. I have out of it what, what I want. And she looked at me and she said, do you think they would let a divorced man pastor this church? I said, what do you mean? She said, you owe us. We have sacrificed for this. We have stood with you. And you are going to walk across that stage and let them give, them give it to you. You will finish this. And with that kick in the seat of my pants, I finished it. I finished it and got it done. So why do I bring all of this up? Well, it's because we as a church need to finish something we started. Two years ago, as you heard, we launched Reach 901. Um, and the whole effort was to repurpose this building, part of it, to, from a fitness center into a, a home for us as a church. And it was a financially prudent thing to do. And we moved in and we began to raise money and um, all the breakdowns that, that John talked about. And so we, we wanted to repurpose it and make it home with 
classes that we could have on Sunday morning and a refinished student ministry area. And this entire worship center was redesigned and perp- and we still have more to go. So in the last two years, by God's grace, we've raised $1.7 million and we have one more year to raise $800,000. And because it's human nature to start something and not finish it, we're just reminding ourselves we've got one year to get left between now and next April. So let's finish what we started. Now, this last week when uh, some of the staff and, and some of the elders were talking about, about this, I remembered a place where the Apostle Paul spoke to a church about finishing what they had started. So I want to ask you to open your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Use a Bible app on your phone, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, or use the Bible that, that you have. And um, we're going to interrupt the study of 1 Peter that we have been in for uh, several months, and we are going to finish what we started. We're going to finish 1 Peter. But we're going to interrupt it for uh, several weeks and talk about how the Bible teaches us to finish what we started. Now, let me give you a word of background. The Apostle Paul, on on one of his missionary journeys, is traveling around to a lot of different churches all over uh, the known world, raising money to help the poor Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. You see, at the date of Pentecost, 3,000 people were saved, and a lot of them decided not to go home. They decided to join the church there. So, and the Christians there already in Jerusalem were very generous. They opened up their home, but it wasn't long before they were stretched to the max. There were just so many people and so much need. And then persecution began, and people were losing their jobs. People were being fined. Um, and on top of that, a famine took place in Judea, the province where Jerusalem is located. So people are just barely surviving just having a hard time getting the next meal. And Paul tells Peter, the apostle Peter, I'm going to do something about this. So he begins to travel from one Gentile church to another Gentile church, raising money to send back to Jerusalem to the Jewish Christians there as a way of saying, in Christ, the dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles that has kept us apart is broken down and we're one family. We're one church and we're going to help one another with this. So the letter he writes to Corinth is really a letter reminding them of what he's trying to do. So first, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, I want to read the first 15 verses. It's a little bit long passage, but go ahead and stand if you would for the reading of God's word. I'm reading from the ESV. You follow along with whatever you have. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Now, that's a little province north of, of, from where Corinth is, that in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty has overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave, according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own free will, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he would complete among you this act of grace. He says, so my buddy Titus, 
is, is, he's going to help you finish what you started. Verse 7. But as you excel in everything, in faith and wisdom, uh, faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. So he says, you guys are such a great church and you're doing so many things well. But in terms of generosity, you got some growing to do. Verse 8. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter, I give my judgment, this benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of all that you have. So there, there's what he's a little concerned that they, their enthusiasm to take part in this offering might have waned. And so he's saying, let's, let's finish what we started here. Verse 12, for if the readiness is there, it's acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much has nothing, had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. This is God's word on generosity, and you can be seated. Now, the real issue according to the Bible, when it comes to money, is trust. What has your trust? And so I want to do a little trust exercise this morning. And I want to ask you to go along with me on this. Would you take your wallet out of your pocket? Just hold it. Go, go ahead, if you would. Just go with me on this. Take it out of your purse, whatever. Take your wallet out of your pocket and, and hold it in your hand. This is the temple of the 21st century. What you hold in your hand is what people believe gives them the ability to experience happiness in this life. What you hold in your hand is the temple of the God mammon. Now please understand, that doesn't mean money is bad. Money is not bad. Money is good. All that God has created is good. God's a God of abundance. But because we are sinful, fallen creatures... We tend to believe that what is in this little leather temple has the ability to make us feel secure and make us feel important and, and valuable. And it's really hard to turn loose of what's in this little leather temple. So here's the exercise of trust. I want you to take your wallet and I want you to hand it to the person beside you. Go ahead. Now we're going to take another offering, and I want you to give like you have never given before. <laughs> Go ahead and hand it back. Just kidding. It's, it's hard to let it go, isn't it? You see, Corinth, this church he's writing to, is, uh, is right in the hub of the financial heart of the Roman Empire. It is a market-driven city. And there are a lot of temple worshipers, wallet worshipers in the city. 
And the people of Corinth, the Christians in the little church there, have been very affected by the culture uh, in, which, in which they are living. And so Paul writes to them and says, let me, let me show you what generosity looks like. And he mentions this church in Macedonia, way up to the north. At the peak, it was, it was the place. Alexander the Great came from Macedonia. It was the headquarters of the known world at that time. But that all has passed. And now it's just a little poor province. It's a hard place to be a Christian. There's persecution going on. Philippi, Thessalonica, those are little churches in that area. And in verse 2, he says, those people in Macedonia are characterized by three things. A severe test of affliction. Life is really hard for them right now. And they have a remarkably high level of joy. They are happy campers. And he says there's extreme poverty. They've hit rock bottom. Now, do you find it strange that those three things go together? Severe test of affliction, high level of joy, extreme poverty. So instead of using their lack of resources as a reason not to give, it has the strange effect of increasing their generosity. So here's the formula that Paul gives. Abundant joy plus extreme poverty plus severe affliction equals great generosity. And the reverse is true. Abundant discontent plus increasing affluence creates a trickle of generosity. Here's the truth, friends, the truth. People don't start giving when they have more money. They start giving when they have more joy. When they're no longer dependent upon this little leather temple for the next happiness fix that they have in life because there's no essential connection between joy and what is going on in our life. And those of you who have ever done a mission trip have seen this with your own eyes. If you've been to Haiti, if you've been to um, parts of Central America, if you've been to parts of India, if you've been to parts of Indonesia, you have come back and shown pictures and you've said, I can't believe those people have nothing. They have nothing. And they're so happy. And they're so generous. I mean, I was once in a little village in the Dominican Republic and visiting with this very poor family living in a cardboard shack with, with dirt floors, and they were going to give us something to eat, and, I didn't, and they brought out a can of fruit cocktail. Okay, fruit cocktail. And after I left, the guy that I was with who had lived there longer, he said, do you realize they have saved that can for a year to give to the most honored person they know? They had Nothing. And Paul just says, this, these people up there, they, they gave their poverty, enabled them not only to give, but he says, they surprised us. They gave more than they could give. They gave beyond their means. How do you give beyond your means? I mean, how do you give more than what you have? And the only answer I can come up with is in some way, God increased their capacity to give. And there's a spiritual principle here. When you have a desire to give... When you have a desire to be a generous person, a supernatural process goes into effect that enables you to give more than you thought you could give, and you start a life of adventure in giving, and your joy just goes sky high. It's a supernatural thing that happens. There's a real interesting thing um, I found on the internet this last week. Um, Richard Easterlin, professor of economics at the University of Southern California, wrote a paper called The Economics of Happiness. You can look it up. He says, once basic needs are met 
affluent people are no happier on the average than non-affluent people. He says that an increase in affluence does not bring an increase in happiness. I mean, we think if we just had more stuff, we would be happier. He says it's not true. He said those two things go together. And then he says the reason is people tend to measure their affluence by how much they consume relative to their neighbors. And the goal is to get ahead of other people. And we call that keeping up with the Joneses. So here's what this guy says. What if the Joneses refinance, which they're apt to do? If everybody tries to get ahead, Easterlin says, they all tend to rise together. So everyone's frustrated in their efforts to achieve happiness by getting ahead of other people. In fact, here's this quote. To the outside observer, economic growth appears to be producing an ever more affluent society, higher and higher standards of living. But to those in this society, affluence will always remain a distantly, urgently sought, but never attained goal. And then he cites this statistic, that the more affluent people become, the less a percentage of giving they take part in. In fact, they give less than people who have a lower income. So let me just ask you a question. Would you call yourself a generous person? I want to be a generous person. I want at my funeral, my kids to say, you know, there were times when dad just didn't have a whole lot, but what he had, he shared. He was just a generous person. And so in verse three and four, Paul gives us some characteristics of generous people. Let me just give them to you. He says in verse three, for they gave. Even though they were poor, they gave. And that tells me everybody ought to be giving something. You're never so poor that you're, you're exempt from the responsibility of giving. In the Old Testament book of Esther, at the very end of that book, it, there's a celebration of, of the deliverance that God gave called the Feast of Purim. And one of the regulations of the Feast of Purim was that everybody had to give something to somebody else. And the poor, a very, very poor person had to find someone poorer than they were in order to give to them something. And it's like God is training his people saying, it doesn't matter whether you have a great deal or you don't have a great deal, you're to give. So they gave joyfully. They gave sacrificially, these people. They gave voluntarily. Paul doesn't have to twist their arm to get them to give. In fact, they surprised Paul. They gave what they were able to give, and then they gave more than they were able to give. It's like when people's hearts get captivated by a desire to be a generous person, they're able to give in ways they didn't think they could give. And their joy just goes up. And it says they gave enthusiastically. That's remarkable when you look at it because he says they begged for the privilege and the honor, the grace, literally, to take part in this offering. You know, usually in a fundraiser, a fundraiser is the person who does the begging and the people who are supposed to, who, who are being begged are the people who give. It's just the reverse here. They're begging for the opportunity to take part in this offering. And apparently Paul didn't want them to do it. Apparently Paul wanted to say... You, you have so little. It's going to be okay. But they insisted, no, we are going to give. Though we, have, we are going to give. And I saw this happen one time in a way that absolutely uh, broke me. I was in a church, and I was preaching on giving something 
that's a sacrifice in order to demonstrate your love for God and your devotion to Jesus. And so we took an offering, and, at, and after the service, an usher came up to me, and he said, uh, so what are we supposed to do with this? And he handed me an envelope, and I opened it up, and inside was a diamond engagement band and a wedding band and a note from a widow who said, I lost my husband. These are very important to me, but I love Jesus even more. I had to sit down. I didn't know how to handle that. I, I teared up because I knew that woman. And I knew she really didn't have a whole lot. So I, I went to her that next week. And I said, look, the church is doing fine. And, and we don't need this. And please take these back. And she looked me in the eye and she said, that is not your decision. That is my decision. And there was no regret, no remorse in her eyes at all. She says, it gives me great joy to do this. Don't take this from me. So what do you do if you get a wedding set in the offering? Well, I went to a couple of jewelers to see if they would buy it. And I found out that wedding sets don't go for very much. In fact, one guy said, I'll give you a hundred bucks for it. I didn't want to tell her that. I... So the next Sunday morning, I stood up in the, in the service and I told the story without mentioning her name and I held up the rings and I said, uh, this is what happened. And after the service, a businessman came up to me with his checkbook and he said, I'll give you $1,000 for those rings. And then another guy right behind him said, I've really got a check written for a 5000 I said, you got it. So, <laughs> and he took those rings and went back and gave it to the widow. She was just like these Macedonian people. The value of a gift is not determined by the monetary uh, worth dollars. It's determined by God by the sacrifice, by what it cost you. I, those rings wouldn't bring much at all. And I don't think the offering these Macedonians gave would bring much at all. But in the eyes of God, they gave a huge amount. I've known a lot of generous people in my life. We have some very generous people in this church. I've never known anybody as generous as that widow and what she did. So what's the secret of generosity? Look at verse 5. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. They gave personally. They weren't just giving money. They, they gave themselves. And if you give yourself fully to the Lord, totally to the Lord, well, then your time goes along with that and your treasure and, and your talents. But that's what they did. That was the secret. Now, churches and church leaders, especially in the last years, have used all kinds of gimmicks to pressure people to give. And some of you have been in churches where there have been all kinds of gimmicks and pressure and it left a bad taste in your mouth. Leaves a bad taste in my mouth as well. Sometimes we don't even invite people to church because we're not, we're not sure what's, what's going to happen. and We're going to give the impression we're just interested in their money and, and not in them. I had a pastor buddy one time who uh, told me he got a letter from a televangelist. And the televangelist wrote in the letter, said, If you will send me $100, I will lay my hands on your gift, and I will pray God's anointing on your gift, and God will repay you with $500. 
So he said, he replied with a letter and he said to the televangelist, tell you what, let's do it this way. You send me a hundred dollars. I'll lay my hands on it and God will repay you $500. He said he never heard from that evangelist after that. That was it. So Paul says, I'm not pressuring you. He said to the church of Corinth, I'm not going to pressure you. I, I just want to show you one example of a generous group of people who are, who are reflecting the same urgency that all of us feel when we want to buy something and we have to get it. And instead for them, it's the urgency of wanting to give something. And then he challenges them in verse 7. As you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this grace of giving as well. He says, you guys, you're excelling in the life of the Spirit in so many ways. So excel in your giving. Set a new standard, a new personal best in giving. And I wrote in my journal, do I excel in the grace of giving? What does that look like? How do you excel in generosity? And it raises all kinds of other questions like, how much do you give to, to excel? And where do you give? And when do you give? And, it, and it's not just being generous with money. How do you excel in generosity in every area of your life? So I wrote this in my journal. Generosity is an attitude demonstrated every day. Jesus once said, if someone wants to sue you, take your shirt, then let him have your coat as well. Matthew 5.40. In other words, don't see how little you can give just to get by. Don't be the last to reach for your wallet when the check comes. I think Christian employers have a reputation for being liberal with their salaries and with bonuses to good workers. I think we ought to be the first ones to respond to help someone when they go through some kind of a tragedy. I think we should be the first to support missionaries. And if God's blessed you with extra furniture... Don't put it in your attic and put it in some kind of storage unit where it's going to rot and mildew. Give it to somebody who needs it. It's just being generous in all areas of life. God's blessed you with some expertise. In this building, when we prepared to move in, two men walked forward and said, we have an area of expertise. One was a general contractor, one was an architect. And they gave their expertise without cost not charging a penny. And we're in this building and it looks like this because of the generosity of those two men. So it's an it's a, it's a, it's a all-encompassing kind of a thing. And if you've been paying attention, then you notice the little word grace appearing over and over. Verse 1, verse 4, verse 6, verse 7. There's a really close connection between grace and, and giving authentic, gracious, freely offered generosity is an unmistakable sign of the grace of God at work in your life. When we sang a, a moment ago um, about God's grace being so amazing, sometimes we restrict the meaning of grace to forgiveness. Well, God's gracious because he forgives me. Grace is a whole lot bigger than that because before there was ever sin, before the fall, God was gracious. At the heart of grace is this idea of, of, of giving. It means that God, being a gracious God, he is an irrepressible giver. And Paul is just saying, when you give, you can actually express something of the heart of God. You can demonstrate that. When our children were smaller, uh, much smaller, and back at home, uh, we were going through a really rough time financially. We were upside down, and we had debts, and couldn't, I didn't know what we were going to do. 
And my son Charlie, seven years old, came down from upstairs with a little jar of coins, and he said, Dad, I want to give this to you. I said, Charlie, no, 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 this is yours. Dad, I want to give this to you. And then he went back upstairs and came back with, with $10, his total life savings. You know, when you're seven years old, $10 is like the down payment on your house, right? I mean, for us, it's like uh, here today, gone tomorrow, you go to Chick-fil-A, spend 10 bucks. And he said, Dad, I, I want you to have this. I got so choked up, I almost didn't give it back to him. <laughs> but it was just that heart, that, just the, the grace I, I, I want to give. And Paul is so careful to stay with grace. He says in verse 3, this is voluntary. He says in verse 8, I'm not commanding you. He says in verse 10, it's my, it's my advice, it's my counsel. I'm not giving any orders. And in verse 11, he says, there may be limitations, what you have. Generosity is a mark of Christian discipleship. And it brings people together. So what does it mean to excel in generosity? What does that mean? Well, it means different things for different people. Some of you here have never given anything. And the next step for you is just to start giving. Just get in the game. Get on the field. Whatever level you start, that's your call today. And there's no pressure here. Some of you may have been given inconsistently. And for you... To excel in giving means you take the next step and maybe you begin to tithe, which is kind of the biblical uh, uh, floor for giving. It's like the training wheels of giving. And it's not a legalistic thing at all. It's just saying, I, I can move to that level. And for me, that would be excelling in giving. For some of you, you give grudgingly. It's hard for you to give. And for you to excel in giving, the next step means you ask God, would you give me the desire to give? And will you give me joy that when I give? And some of you make far more than you need to live on, and it's been a long time since you were stretched in giving. And for you, maybe the next level in giving is to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to put a ceiling on what we spend on ourselves, and the rest of it I'm going to give, and I'm going to stretch myself. I'm going to excel in giving. But Paul just says it is possible to use Money to express the heart of God. Now, I want to close with this. The most beautiful verse to me in all the Bible is verse 9. Look at it. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. In our society, the heroes are the people who go from rags to riches, like Oprah or Steven Spielberg. But there's another society called the kingdom of God. And in the kingdom of God, the hero goes from riches to rags, swaddling rags, burial rags. And he says, you want to look, see what generosity looks like? It is he who is rich in glory and honor. Angels could not walk past his throne without bowing and saying, holy, holy, holy. And he goes from that to being born in a stable with animals all around, being raised as an, in a little tiny village. And one time Jesus said, birds have their nest, foxes have their holes. I don't even have a place to lay my head. He became poor, not because poverty is good. Poverty is not good. 
but he became poor so that we might become rich. Rich in hope, rich in love, rich in fellowship. Do you know how much money some people in our world would pay just to kind of have the relationships that we're developing in this church? So Paul says, there's a Macedonians over there. And I just want to hold that up as an example for you. And here's the Lord Jesus, and I hold it up for you. Now, I started by this little exercise of trust. Go ahead and take your wallet out one more time, if you would. Just take it out and hold it in your hand. I'm not going to do anything weird this time. All right? Just hold it in your hand a moment. Here's the homework assignment for today. Sometime today, sometime this week, take this and put it in your hands and say, Jesus, I give this to you. I give myself to you. I'll do what you want me to do. But I give this. It will not be a temple to another God that's supposed to give me pleasure and security and importance. I give this to you. And then, after you prayed that, just do whatever the Holy Spirit prompts you to do. And ask yourself the question, how could I grow in being a generous person? I wrote a prayer that I'd like us all to pray. And so it's, it's on the screen. It's going to be on the screen. Let me read it. And then if you agree with it, I'm going to ask you to pray it with me for just a moment. But let me read it first. Lord Jesus, you are not most interested in what we have. You want us. It is as if we can see your hands outstretched our way. We dare not put anything less than ourselves into your hands. You desire nothing less than all of us. So here we are. Here I am. I give myself first and fully to you. Be the Lord of my life. Own everything that I have. I mean this. I really mean this. Amen. Would you stand to your feet, please? If this is your prayer, I'd ask you to pray it with me out loud. Let's repeat it. Lord Jesus, you are not most interested in what we have. You want us. It is as if we can see your hands outstretched our way. We dare not put anything less than ourselves into your hands. You desire nothing less than all of us. So here we are. Here I am. I give myself first and fully to you. Be the Lord of my life. Own everything that I have. I mean this. I really mean this. Amen.